So we're coming back to our study on the biblical theology of sexual intimacy. So this is really built on the foundation of what we had last week, uh, just the instructions clear from scripture of what God intended with sex and um, what he forbade certain things like homosexuality, masturbation, pornography, all those things that we'll come back on this lesson more on the instructional side and then we're going to have a whole one on homosexuality and transgenderism. It's a huge thing in our world today. And so um, I wanted to divulge a whole uh, session for that one. All right. So let's uh, get it started asking for the Lord's help as we approach scripture to talk about these things. I know it's um, I was just saying, man, it's kind of hard. Sometimes I want to blush for some of these, but... You know, scripture doesn't blush when talks about this topic. And I think we should be clear. It should encourage us. It should give us um, um, hope and encouragement that God did not leave us without answers. The world has a lot that they talk about on this topic. And yet, it is not helpful. It is uh, against God's design. And so we need solid foundation to talk about these things. All right, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your love for us and how you care for us enough to give us instruction on how to live in a broken world that have distorted um, your beautiful design for sexual intimacy. I pray, Father, that even as we go through some of these things, may you encourage our thinking, may you challenge and, and convict uh, some, Lord, that might be involved in um, some of the sins. Pray, Lord, that they might find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ and um, to be freed and freed him indeed. Lord, we're thankful for all that you have taught us so far. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, uh, based on what we talked about last week, so I might not even read some of the references that we already read, but it is there in your notes, so you can <clears throat> kind of pick up from where I left. So, implications of the biblical theology of uh, marital intimacy or uh, sexual relationship. But my first point there is that sex is only one aspect of this one flesh relationship. It is um, pretty amazing how, how much emphasis is put on. The, the, you know, there is the physical aspect of, of sexual intimacy, but it's not all of it. It is more than a biological act, uh, so much so that the, the language used in the Old Testament was um, the, the verb to know. Whenever uh, a husband and a wife came together, it says that the husband knew his wife. Uh, it was at a deeper level. So it's more than a biological act. Sexual relations symbolize appreciation, acceptance, approval, in regard, they promote togetherness and unity, mutual trust and companionship. Um, and this is, I, I mentioned it right next week, sexual relations help us to know the other person better. Sexual relations are a form of intimate sharing. Um, it's something that you don't know, we don't do with people that we occasionally, as the world portrays it, it is something that is it's shared at a deeper level. And then some observations as a consequence of that. Um, one of it is most sexual issues in marriage have no connection with physical or physiological source, but are primarily relational in nature. So this is one of the major things. Whenever I'm counseling a couple and they're having problems, their communication, they have a conflict, they have different opinions, their sexual life is, doesn't go well either. Why? I mean, you can't go to bed with your problem. It, it's just not how things happen. So when there is a breach in trust or in communication, the sexual relationship will be affected. Another implication of that is that sexual relationship is a blessing, but it's not ultimate. It is a temporal gift from God. Some couples might never... Uh, might never be able to consummate their marriage and intimacy. They might have um, a disability or some sort of, of difficulty that they can't um, 
deal with it, that doctors can't fix it. And yet, um, they still can be one flesh with all the other aspects. Now, others, for reason of illness or aging, might not be able to enjoy it as they have previously enjoyed it. So it is a temporal gift to be enjoyed as far as the Lord has allowed the couple to enjoy it. And they should pursue it as we talked about it. Um, I appreciate uh, Tim Charlie's, I'm going to quote him a lot in this uh, lesson here. He says, whether married or single, we can tend to make sass into more than it is. Idols begins as good things to which we give too much importance. And a few things is lied into over-idolatry with greater frequency and greater power than sex. We allow a good gift of God to supersede the God who gave it. So God gave, us for, gave it to us for our enjoyment so that we can praise him for, for that blessing and not making, make that blessing into a God in and of itself. Sex is good and even great, he says, but it's not ultimate. I think this is a good observation, particularly with, uh, when you talk to, to young people, there's just this huge expectation that because of, of the world, uh, pornography, and, and then the movies, how they portray it, they think like, oh, this is the ultimate thing, it's gonna be amazing, wonderful, and when they get to you know, the difficulties of it, it is just out of their minds, like, well, this is not what I thought what it was. Um, but when we put it in the right place, it is something that it is truly enjoyable and um, can be, it is used for God, God's glory. All right, letter B here. I say uh, sex primary focus is, and I put by parenthesis, you know, it's pleasing the other person um, as we read in 1 Corinthians 7, maybe we should go back there. Just five verses, I think will be. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, if there is any moment that you like to make an observation or ask a question, please feel free to interrupt. I didn't set up necessarily a time for questions there integrated in the lesson. So any observations, comments, feel free to raise your hand and um, I'll give you an opportunity. Um, First Corinthians chapter seven, uh, it says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise, also, the wife also to her husband. The wife does not have the authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and Come together again, so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And then he's going to address the singles later. So uh, I say here, the primary focus really is on pleasing other. The world portrays as a way of taking, taking, taking. It is something that I enjoy. It is for my pleasure. It is very self-centered, self-focused. But when we are focusing on pleasing God, by default, we're going to please the other person. Well, sex is tender, is sweet, and selfless, and giving. Like what pornography portrays, um, this is the, another Charlie's observation, pornography is all about conquest, about having my most base and selfish needs met. Right now, sex has, has boundaries. It says your Pornography scoffs at the boundaries. It teaches that anything I desire is acceptable merely because I desire it. The things that supposedly arouse porn stars are very likely not the things that might arouse your spouse or make them feel loved or treasured. They are far more likely to make them feel demeaned or turned into something more convenient than an object instead of a precious bride or a precious groom. I think that is a very um, good observation. Really, it is tender, it is sweet, it is selfless, and it's giving. Second observation there. Sex is meant to be 
the ultimate and immediate, uh, immediated, unmediated contact. Contact between two real people, two immediate people. It is face-to-face, body-to-body, soul-to-soul nature, the nature of sex that makes it so powerful and meaningful. Mediated sex, and he's primarily referring here to pornography, it's when someone is using something other than their spouse to please themselves. Mediated sex is an oxymoron, it's a self-contradiction, an activity that has lost its essential power and purpose. Um, Paul lays out really clearly, it is not self-centered. It is a fraudulent counterfeit version of sex, pornography is. Sex simply cannot exist in a pure biblical essential human way in a mediated environment. The medium is directly opposed to the purpose. Um, God made that to be shared. All right, another observation coming from that. Um, implication. Different spouses might have different drives. And let's say here, a humble accommodation which focuses on preferring the other will bring greater fulfillment for both spouses. Um, y- you read this, you know, on uh, even biblical books, you know, uh, Bible-based books on uh, talking about biblical sexuality and say, generally speaking, men have a greater sexual drive than uh, the, their wives Yet, I don't know where this idea came from that women are unable or experience less pleasure than, than men. And so, for those men, I would say they're just as responsible to provide her pleasure as much as he experiences. And I, I cannot shy away from this. It says clearly here that the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. So he ought to be thinking, what is the best way that I can please her? And the, the, what it comes down to really is a, is a thought of men think in the way they think that their wife is going to be pleased. But they should be thinking, how does she think she's going to be pleased? So a key here is that to enter in an intimate relationship with a sense of humility uh, remember that husbands are called to live with their spouses in an understanding way. Uh, remember when I was doing my uh, marriage and family class in school, uh, Dr. Sheet had this little acronym, I'm sure I probably will remember this, that, you know, the, like the woman has her responsibility to be a helper, um, to be a mother, you know, and a homemaker. And then for the man, he's supposed to be a lover, right? He's supposed to love the wife like, uh, Christ loved the church, sacrificed for her, and is supposed to be a learner based on First Peter chapter 3, that he always is to be learning about his spouse. And a key area that he can be learning about his spouse is in this area of sexual intimacy. Every husband should be a learner. What are the things that they enjoy, not that you presume that they enjoy? All right, moving on here. I think I made my point. The struggles with sexual sin, even the ones uh, prior to marriage, are tremendously destructive to a couple's intimacy. Um, I, I emphasize, whenever I'm counseling single guys, you, you know, this is struggle that you think that is just not important, that is uh, irrelevant, that is just harming yourself, will have a great impact in your future spouse as well. I mean, I'm, the Lord that we serve is a God of hope, a God of freedom. And can he change? Can he restore? Absolutely. But memories just don't go away. And so it, it is uh, helpful, you know, as a way of warning. That's why Proverbs, I mean, we have a long section that Solomon wrote at his later age when he realized this is what I pursued, the morality that I was involved with. It is not worth it run away from it, and, and thinking maybe about his father because he says, you know, as my father taught me, I mean, think about David, <laughs> an adulterer, to trying to teach the, his child. So, um, the struggles with sexual sin, even though the ones prior to marriage are tremendously destructive, um, God can restore, he's a God of hope, but we should be warned uh, to not go there. 
And then uh, lastly here, the implication of this uh, 1 Corinthians 7 is that this is one area where presumption on the spouse's level of comfortability can be particularly hurtful. Caring, clear communication, and humility are key. So this, this discussion I primarily picked up from Tim Charlie's book here. He says, what is your heart in this? Because what is, you know, I think the major question that people, well, what is permissible? What does the Bible allow? What is, and is this the right question to ask? Why is that that you're going there? Where's your heart in this? Any action we take in the bedroom or anywhere else is motivated by our hearts. So there is more value in asking, where is in my heart uh, that I want to do this? Why do I want to do this? Is this, a particular, is this particularly act wrong? Do you see the chance in focus, the change in focus? I consider the act, but the, then trace it to the desire for that act to its source. It is in my heart. Again, Jesus taught his disciples that it, it comes from, the, from within, not from external things that defile the man. Mark 7, um, all the way from verse 1 to 23. So all evil, whether adultery or covetousness or sexual morality, comes from within. You need to cultivate a tender heart by being willing to look into your heart to uncover your motives. Why? So you can do only those things primarily motivated by love for your spouse, avoiding things primarily motivated by any kind of sin. So Charles gives a word of caution here as Christians who still Having dwelling sin, our hearts are messy places. Don't get hung up if you realize your motivations in regard to sex or some particular act are mixed of good and bad. Your motives might never be completely pure. So make the judgment based on what you believe is primarily motivating you. What is really behind this? Is this the act of a conqueror or a servant? You know full well that too much of pornography depicts acts of conquest, not acts of love or service. You know that in pornography, the pleasure of the man is generally far greater and far more genuine than that of the woman. So do not subject your spouse to acts that would make her feel like the means to an end, like they have been conquered instead of loved and nurtured, like they have been defiled instead of treasured. Does this bring pleasures to one or to both? It's another question to ask. One purpose of sex is to bring mutual pleasure, as we just read. As it's best, sex allows both spouses to give and receive at the same time through the same act. It's a unique, it's unique in that way and uniquely powerful and fulfilling. There may be times when there is more inequity in the giving and receiving of pleasure, but each spouse should always be seeking greater pleasure for the other, not for him or himself. Do not always pleasure yourself out the to the expense of the spouse. Never commit acts which are pleasurable to one and distasteful to the other. Another question, does this trouble either of their conscience? The conscience is a special gift of God and one that he commends us to, re to heed. Titus chapter 1, verse 15 says, where um, we're having a defiled conscience is associated to impurity and unbelief. God gave us all the same law through his word, but he gives each of us a conscience all on our own. We are required to heed our conscience and not to violate it. Do not violate your conscience with regard uh, to certain acts or do not cajole your spouse in violating theirs, and I'm, I, you know, he writes here a lot to man, and I, um, I am aware that pornography is no longer just an issue for men, uh, but females as well. Another question to ask: Can you thank God for this? It is difficult to thank God for things that we've done in violation of God's law, or His our conscience. When considering particular acts, evaluate whether you would be able to thank God for them. If you couldn't, don't do it. Um, right, but if you can trust, that if you trust God, you can know that he will give you the grace, um, or I lost my line here. For many men, these guidelines will be disappointing. 
For in them, you may see that certain born-field fantasies, things that you have seen on a screen or held dear and hope to experience, must go unfulfilled. Much of what is portrayed as normal in pornography is forbidden by God as a sin against him and against your spouse. But if you trust God, and I think that's the part where he, he says it really well here, but if you trust God, you can know that he will give you the grace not, on, not only to get over it, actually to get over yourself, but also to find greater pleasure in purer things. Countless committed couples will affirm that they have found great and growing pleasure in years and decades of what, according to pornography, would be very boring sex. For these godly couples, the years of sex exclusively with one another have proven far more interesting, far more alluring, far more intimate, and far more satisfying than any pleasure they that could have ever found in a running wild world. Do you trust God that this, is, this can be the case for you and for your spouse? I really appreciated his um, comments here on, the, on this area. All right. The point C here, I say sex within the boundaries of marriage is a protection and it's a joy. It's a protection and it's a joy. We already read in 1 Corinthians 20 that it is a protection even against Satan's temptation um, and, and the world's temptation. This is all out there. He wrote, when he wrote uh, the letter to the Corinthians, I mean, talk about exposure to immoralities. The city was just filled. As I mentioned, if, you know, we have the, the main city is on the ground, you know, the sea level, and they had the Acrocorinth, was the, the high, tall uh, part of the city, was in the, in the hill. And on that hill was the Temple of Aphrodite, where they had a thousand prostitutes, both male and female. And the people of the city in the night, you know, you could see all the lights up. And it, it was just a temptation all over there. And Paul is saying, you know, make your sexual uh, fulfillment in your spouse something to that is stronger, that can compete with anything that the world offers. So, some more observations. Sex is a blessing from God to be enjoyed and received with thanksgiving. It should be treated as an act of worship to God, not an act of worship of self. First Timothy 4 talks about, um, how about we go there, First Timothy 4. <clears throat> Talk about in the last days, there will be people that will forbid marriage, right? Um, and we know that the sexual intimacy is connected to marriage. So the Spirit explicitly affirms that in the later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as if a branding of iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared, by, shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So those things, marriage and food, were things that God created to be enjoyed and received with thanksgiving. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude but it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Um, so it, it's kind of funny for people to think of, of sexual intimacy as an act of worship, but truly if uh, both espou spouses are walking with the Lord, it, it, it is very fulfilling and you realize that. It's like, wow, I, there's no guilt in it because I am doing God's will. <laughs> um, all right, sex within marriage should be the norm. As we already read in 1 uh, Corinthians 7, the spouses are encouraged to be intoxicated with each other's love. This is the only part in scripture that tells you, get drunk. <laughs> let's, let's read Proverbs chapter 5. Not with wine, not with strong drink. Proverbs chapter 5. And we're looking at verse 15 through 19. Drink water from your own cistern. And we read this passage last week, but I just want to remind you that 
waters in, in this context of uh, Proverbs 5 here is really talking about the sacred relationship, and it will become pretty clear to you that that's what he's talking about. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well, just as powerful as waters uncontained are. You know, think about mudslides and all the, the floodings, how destructive it is. But when it's contained, when you are, when it's fresh, and it's something that it, it gives life. Should your springs be dispersed abroad and the streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Now you know he's talking about here. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. And here's the word that I was talking about. Be exhilarated always with her love. So if you look, it might be a little link there to a side note, the word be exhilarated. What does it say? Intoxicated. (laughs) Get intoxicated, get drunk with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? And then, you know, this is right in the context of, of Solomon giving warning to his children to say, don't, don't go there. Don't go after the adulterous woman, which is really a portrayal of sexual immorality in general. So sex within marriage should be the norm. Spouses are encouraged to be intoxicated with uh, each other's love. Other comment I made, sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage. Hebrews 3, 4 says that, and and should be applied, both singles um, encouraging them to patient perseverance in purity and to marriage, the fulfillment, the fulfilled pure enjoyment. It says, marriage must be honored among all and the marriage bed kept undefiled for God will judge sexually immoral people and adulterers. And then the last observation, a fulfilling sexual relationship is a true protection to temptations from the flesh, the world, and Satan. Um, First Corinthians talks about that, that so you're not tempted you know, your own flesh will tempt you to fall. The world is offering. Um, I, I was reading the other day, chapter 7 of Proverbs, uh, the description of the sexually immoral woman. And, and it says, you know, she's available. She's everywhere. She's in the streets. And, and it, it, it is. You think about sexual morality in the world that we're living in today. It is on the internet. It is on the magazines, it's in the billboards, it's everywhere you go, it will be offered. And God has offered a place that is safe and, and protected um, through you know, a godly marriage. So a fulfilling sexual relationship is a true protection to temptation from the flesh, the world, and from Satan. Very good. Um, and Diamond is really talking about this act of worship, really, that... Um, like in anything in, in the believer's life, <clears throat> we are under the, the Lord's authority, the Lord's protection over us. You know, I, I really appreciate that he bringing up First Corinthians chapter 6, that you do not know that your bodies belong to the Lord. So really, for, if, we're just, if I can push the point a little further here, um, you know, uh, we don't own <laughs> ourselves. Um, and when we are married... First of all, my body does not belong for my, my pleasure alone. It, it's for my, my wife's pleasure. Um, and it is a, a blessing from the Lord. Um, there is no guilt involved with that. And then just a, a kind of a pick up on what Dylan was saying, you know, the lust, what, what is lust about? What is the difference between a pure desire for a husband and his wife and a wife for her husband? It, it basically is because it's in the confines of God intended design. Even in Genesis, before the fall, Adam was excited to see his wife. He wasn't uh, um, thinking selfish, self, in a selfish manner about himself. He was excited for the blessing that the Lord has given him. So lust is really when we're, we're outside of, of God's intended design. You're lusting after someone else. You were, you were wanting to satisfy yourself alone. You're not thinking, 
of, of your spouse. So really it's the self-centered nature of the sexual desire. That's lust. Um, but a pure sexual desire, it, it yearns to be with the spouse. It will communicate that. We'll get them excited about it. So, all right. Now, I wanted to move on here, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish um, everything. Uh, this is, if this is something that you are struggling or you, you know of someone that is struggling, um, I'm not going to cover everything here. You know, I think, you know, seek one of us, one of the elders, share that struggle. It is not the kind of thing that you want to deal with alone. Uh, it's one of the lies that the world uh, um, gives to people is that, oh, you, you, you can deal with this on your own. And, and it, it's not. You need the Lord's help and you need the church's help, the brothers and sisters that could be walking with you um, to, to deal with this. All right? Now, I want to start with uh, the world. This is based on a, a paper that I wrote. So if you want to read it later, uh, I cut it, a lot of things out. But from the world perspective, and then we'll contrast that with God's perspective. Sexual sins from the worldly perspective. They call um, sexual addiction. And um, I say world perspective, but it's kind of interesting. Is there, it, there are, I'm not going to say hundreds, because I can't say for sure, of Christian organizations. They're focused on, on, on dealing with rehabilitation of uh, sexual sins, and they call addiction. Now, it, there's not a consensus even in the medical community, so much so, even the DSM, you know, the, the manual for psychology, they kept taking it out and taking, putting it back in and then taking it out and putting it back in. Um, they don't have enough data to, to keep it there as a diagnosis. They used to have that as hypersexuality or someone that has lots of sexual desire. Uh, one that was there and is no longer there was the uh, gender dysphoria um, and homosexuality. They removed it because you can't call that a disorder anymore because it's a norm all over. All right? But I say here that DSM does not include sex addiction as a diagnosed mental disorder, but the term and diagnosis all across the board in psychiatric, psychiatric unities. Um, you, you just Google it, the institutions, and how much they charge for, for treatment. Both Christian and, and, and non-believers, it's, it's, it's amazing. The amount that they charge for training people in this particular, air, in particular area. And I, I have some observations. Why do I think this is such a financial um, leading to this diagnosis. So the gold, gold standard for the method of diagnosis was created by Carnes, Patrick Carnes, um, and has this screening test as in most um, psychological diagnosis, there's no physical test, there's no blood sampling that you can take. Um, even, even if someone were able to measure the sexual hormones, testosterone, estrogen, that in and of itself, it is not an implication. Someone can have lows of testosterone and not necessarily have hypersexuality. <clears throat> so this is what it consists of. This is the, the diagnosis criteria. Recurrent failure to resist impulses to engage in a specific sexual behavior. Frequent engaging sexual behaviors to a great extent and over a longer period of time than intended. Persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to stop, reduce, or control sexual behaviors. Inordinate amount of time spent in obtaining sex, being sexual, or recovering from sexual experience. Preoccupation and pre uh, with these activities. Frequent engaging continuation of sexual behavior despite the knowledge of having a persistent or recurrent Social, financial, psychological, and physical problem that is caused. Now, one of their major things is why is not acceptable for them, and that why they, people are seeking out help is because it causes distress, anxiety, relentless irritability, um, even in engaging that, and it's giving up or limiting social, occupational, or recreational activities because of sex. So there is a social impact. There's an impact on society. That's why 
people would seek help for that. Not because it is a sin, not because it's uh, harming them, but it's because it's a, a menace to society. That's why they had that treatment. As one can observe, in spite of lack of physical exams and tests, there are numerous support groups and clinics all across the U.S. for treating sexual addicts based on this uh, diagnosed criteria. No hard science uh, is used to back it up. Many psychologists have attempted to compare sexual addiction with other forms of addiction or mental disorders such as drug and alcohol addiction, eating disorders, or multiple personality disorders. They're just not themselves. They're just turning to this other person. The comparative method of symptoms is helpful, unhelpful, says Dr. Lay, and this is a psychologist. He wrote a whole book on saying that this is a myth, this is a, a big fat lie, um, even from the medical standpoint. standpoint. So surveys of sex addicts show, up, show that to 40% have anxiety disorders, 50% have substance abuse disorders, 70% have mood disorders. These studies actually are quite revealing the real problem underlying sexual addiction. The same heart motivations which cause some, uh, what they call the mood disorders, the same sinful heart that is causing someone to be anxious is the same sinful heart that are leading them to this behavior. So nobody has been reported to die for not having sex. It is not a thing. In fact, the Apostle Paul refutes this argument when instructing the believers in Corinth to abstain from sexual immorality. While sex is a normal biological function of our bodies, it is not essential to one's existence. Not to be comparable or elevated to the basic need for nourishing, nourishment from food. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 6. Because here's, here's what the first century, you know, the... the this lie has been around for a long time. Oh, it's just an, a biological need that I have. Really? Just like you have to eat, just like you have to feed your body, this is something that you just have to do. I can't help it. Um, let's, let's start with verse 12 of chapter 6. It says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered, dominated, enslaved by anything. Food is for the stomach. This is what they were saying. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but also will raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall, then, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Well, you do not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her. For well, he says that two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Um, and so you get the gist of it. It is not a basic need as food is. That is just a big old fat excuse um, that the world has put up out there. Why then therapists still continue to hold the claims of sexual addiction and offer expensive therapy for people struggling with these issues? Why is that? Here's the three, three observations, um, and I got this from a psychologist. Interesting. He's an unbeliever. Reason is to protect and redeem the reputation of people of influence in society. They are not immoral people. They're, they're sick. They're, they're addicts. And uh, you will recall that uh, with uh, your, one of your former presidents, right? Uh, it's, I saw this, uh, I was looking for an image of him, and I found this uh, picture of a book that they, they built a whole thing on uh, the Clinton syndrome, the president and the self-destructive nature of sexual addiction. So he, he's, he's not morally culpable, he's just sick. 
Protect and redeem the reputation of people of influence in society. Former President Bill Clinton, the golf player, uh, Tiger Woods, another example of that. Another possibility is to increase the revenues of therapy clinics, both in training and consulting. As I said, it's huge. It is huge. Here in Minnesota, I came across to a Christian organization, <laughs> and it's so highly psychologized. I watched their videos, I'm like, they don't even mention the Bible. But it's loads of money. To go there for a weekend, it's $1,400 for you know, just, just a weekend there in that facility. I mean, if you really care about helping people, um, does that cost? And lastly, furnish the pharmaceutical industry with niches of revenue. The very same companies who produce medicines for erectile dysfunction indicates SRIs, currently prescribed to treat depression and anxiety, for suppressing effects on libido. Isn't that interesting? It's really a money-making industry. Now, let's go what the scripture says. The term sex addiction is not only inaccurate since there is no organic components proven to cause dependence, you know, because addiction should have dependence, tolerance, and withdrawal syndrome. Nobody felt sick for not having sex. But it's also misleading because it takes away all the hope that one has to be freed from the bondage of their desire. The scriptures refer to this kind of addictive behavior as enslavement. That's the biblical terminology. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 8, 19, and I copy that for you there. It says, although these false teachers promise such freedom, they themselves are, what? Enslaved to immorality. For whatever a person succumbs to, to that he is enslaved. So I, I put there a chart, a little graphic that Dr. Street uh, was one of my professors had in his book, Purifying the Heart of Sexual Idolatry, that there is a, a stages where the strength of the person diminishes in the fight, so the resistance goes lower and their craving keeps growing and growing. So the stage one, the deep desires I stirred in the heart of the person. The stage two, I, these idolatrous cravings conceive and grow. The stage three is when the person becomes, gets in bondage, where they can't resist anymore and they, to their cravings. So idolatrous cravings are behaviorally born and mature. And lastly, the full fourth stage is fully formed uh, desires produce death. It's the progression that James gives to temptation, right? So furthermore, the term addiction derives from the Latin addictus, which means assigned to or surrendered. And the genuine Christian has not surrendered, is not surrendered to this sinful bondage. He might temporarily um, go to that bondage again, but it's not in his nature. The idea of addiction carries a medical etiology and therefore a medical prescription for it. Along with that, medical and demonic solutions to habituated sexual sins assume a certain unnecessary victimization on the part of the counselee. So you, you hear also, even some Christian circles, oh, he has, he has a demon of uh, a sexual addiction um, and, or is, is, is being influenced. It's really putting the person at a victim position. You know, I'm not responsible for this. Something else is making me do it. Um, it is my brain that is making me do it. It is whatever is making me do it. My hormones are making me do it. If we have people to think in biblical terms about their sexual sins as slaves, they can have the hope that in Christ there's true freedom. Those who have been crucified with him are no longer enslaved to sin, for Christ has died for, to set them free, so that sin, therefore, reign in their mortal bodies no longer to make them obey its passions, based on Romans. So another dangerous ditch one can fall when it comes to sexual sin is taking the complacement approach. So the complacency, you know, this is one famous Christian author, James Dobson. He says that there's nothing wrong with uh, masturbation. 
uh, because it's not morally wrong. Most people do it, and so uh, the Bible really doesn't talk about it um, clearly um, by name. So this Christian psychologist fails in three major areas, and I got this from Tim Challies as well. It says, first, they take a very humanistic view of man in the claim that some behaviors, such as masturbation, are okay because everybody does it. It is extremely common among men and part of adolescent development. That's, that's what James Thompson said. As Jimmy Challies notes here, normal is not a synonym for morally acceptable. If we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then sin is both absolutely normal and horribly wrong. You can't justify something just because everybody does it. Second, they're wrong in saying that because the Bible doesn't mention it by name, neither masturbation or pornography is addressed in the scriptures. But the fact that something is not mentioned by name, such as abortion, it doesn't make it right, does it? You don't have abortion mentioned in Scripture. The word abortion is not there. But we know that God had made us in his image that killing of any life is against his principles. One could consider the clear value of human life and the sin of murder. We are right to conclude that abortion is a sin. In a similar manner, because the scripture speaks clearly about the power of sexuality and the sin of lust, we can conclude that masturbation is nearly always sinful. Why is that? I'm going to read this again. Because the scripture speaks clearly about the power of sexuality and the sin of lust, we can conclude that masturbation is nearly always sinful. Thirdly, ignoring a practice because it produces guilt. So that was the other thing oh, just don't tell them it's a sin because it's going to make them feel guilty about it. You know, they're already guilty. You don't want to just make it worse on them. Ignoring a practice because it produces guilt is not the way to go about dealing with the problem. God's solution for our guilt is not to change his definition of sin for some sort of disorder. God dealt with our guilt at the cross. The only way for us to, guilt is a good thing, you know? It, it, it's like that light in your dashboard that is warning that something is wrong with your car. <laughs> you need to do something about it. The way to, to, to deal with it is not get a, a hammer and just smash it. It's like, no, I don't care about what is that you're telling me. It is, okay, what is wrong here? Um, I'm feeling guilty for a reason. Why is that? Well, God's word is clear that this is not acceptable. Now, how then we help people dealing with, with sexual sin? Uh, it's not by denying it. It's not by calling um, a disease or disorder. First thing is give the hope of the gospel. Give the hope of the gospel. First step in counseling someone with sexual sin is to provide the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For believers, they can be assured of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God is faithful and he will not, will not let them to be tempted beyond their ability to withstand. No matter how strong the hormones rage within them or temptations come, God is also faithful to provide a way of escape of what they may be able to endure it. Furthermore, biblical counselors should be compassionate and not minimize when the struggles just because they might not struggle as intensely as do their counselees. Living with unsatisfied sexual desires is not an easy task for most men. We should have great compassion for singles living in celibate faithfulness to Christ and couples faced with the challenge of different levels of desire or even uh, with inability to fulfill those desires. Every person knows the breadth, the width, and the depth of their struggle. We don't have to diminish or make light of their struggle to help them. We show how great our God is and how powerful he is to help them no matter how deep their struggle is. Take for instance, um, I'm, I'm gonna skip this. Um, but we as a church should really be a, a, a haven and, and helping people deal with these things and not to minimize it, not to uh, belittle it, but to really offer the hope of the gospel. 
um, there is hope and help. Second, deal with the heart motivations. A misunderstanding is that addressing sexual sin is a merely matter of behavior. Some hide behind the claim that sex is purely a biological act characterized by the buildup or necessary release of sexual tension. It is really not. Um, I will skip some of this because I, I have mentioned in other classes we know how central the heart is. Um, but one of the things that I really appreciated was a Dr. Street book that point out that there is, behind the, the sexual desire, behind the masturbation, there is another sin there. People don't just go to this because there is the hormones pushing them to that. What does it say? From within the heart, all those impurities come. It is, it is a, as an idolatrous desire. It's the, uh, an enslavement desire. It's the worship of self and not the worship of God. And our hearts are deceitful. We can come up with all sorts of um, justification for it. So let me see if I can find my place here. Of, um, oh, sorry, sorry. So Dr. Street wrote a book uh, that is a masterpiece describing some idols that motivate sexual sins. Four of the most common negative motivations that tend to rule the uh, hurting heart are anger, self-pity, discontentment, and fear. You know, generally speaking, uh, when people go to that, there, there is that temptation. When they're discontent, they're at a vulnerable place, they're trying to comfort for that hurt that they have. On the other hand, a heart can be motivation, motivated by a hungry heart, self-reward. Oh, I've done so much good for God. You know, I, Dr. Shady used to tell the story of a pastor that fell out of ministry that he, he, was, he has just his agenda filled with things, of activities. And he rationalized, oh, look how much I've done for God. I can cash it out some. I can reward myself. And he started seeing prostitutes. I mean, it's just appalling. You, 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 you look at that and it's like, well, what is that coming from? It's a faulty thinking that I can reward myself for doing good to God. Isn't that twisted? Uh, flattery. Um, people that think too much of themselves, oh, look how attractive I am, look how much I can conquer, you know, how many women I can uh, attract. A desire for power and control or a desire for comfort. I just want some relief. This list provides a spiritual cardiogram by which a counselor is able to identify the rationales of uh, the counselor's heart to justify his useful indulgence. I'm going to close you with one example here, and then I'll pick up from the rest of our notes next week. Genesis 38. Uh, Judah is a classical example of sexual sin motivated by self-pity. So you will remember from chapter 38, some of you are probably familiar with the story, it came about this time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again, he bore another son, named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah. So this is his wife, Shua, a Canaanite. She was not part of God's people, right? But they were forbidden already at that time. Anyway, so he takes daughters from the Canaanites and marries his sons. And they have a problem with his son who was evil. The Lord kills him, his wife Tamar. Right? You're recalling the story? So Tamar then remarries the, other, the next child, and then they kind of get scared, like, well, that's, he just died, too. I don't want to marry her with the next kid. So he secludes her. And then um, it says that um, his wife passed. Let me see, I think verse 12 here. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. So his wife passed. And he already had lost two sons, so he was grieving. 
When the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep sheep shearers at Timnah, and he and his friend Hira, the Adullamite. And it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enaim, which is on the road of Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. So the third son, who was supposed to marry her, didn't marry her. So she thought, I'm going to take things on my own hand. I'm going to take control. Her motivation is different. I want to take control of things. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now. Let me come into you. It is not, and mind you, it's not that he is, oh, I'm seeking for, I'm looking for a new wife. No, he's looking for a harlot. He's looking for a prostitute to satisfy himself. So I'm not going to go read the, just make some comments here. After a considerable amount of time, a third tragedy struck the household of Judah. His wife died, and then when Tamar received the word that her father-in-law was coming, she changed her outfit, um, and you know the rest of the story. Um, she knew how to entrap him. Although we are told explicitly the text doesn't, does suggest that Judah, after experiencing the, law, experiencing the loss of most of his family, decided to indulge his self-pity sexually. He eventually sought Tamar's attractive appearance near the gateway where prostitutes would wait. And not knowing she was his daughter-in-law, he propositioned to her. This was an easy way to rationalize for Judah. He had lost some of the most precious things in his life, and they would never be returned. He had suffered far more than most of them. Since he already had a penchant for a Canaanite woman in this part of the country, was away from home on a business trip to see his friend, no one would ever know what he did. Judah solicited a harlot because of his need to be comforted. Judah covetously desired to be comforted from his hardships, and Tamar covetously desired to be righted for the wrong that she had suffered. Both motivations underlined the sexual means by which they were finally expressed. Each of these desires met in a holy union of cultic prostitution and incest. Same thing happened with... um, um, King David, and other ones. So, it was the Lord God Father that he should have sought for comfort. Um, Abraham, to whom Judah should have run for comfort, um, the God of Abraham, whom should he should have run for comfort instead of the cultic prostitution. To Israel, the Lord says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who Are you that are afraid of man who dies and of son of man who makes like grass, Isaiah 51, 12? The Lord is saying, I, even I am the one that comforts you. It is not pleasures, it is not sin, it is me. In the New Testament, Paul describes God as the one who comforts. It says, blessed be the God of Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. As a Canaanite, Tamar probably worshipped her cultic idols and did not know better, but Judah should have known and returned to the God of his family. There, he would have found grace and provision for every need. So, it's just an illustration of really dealing with the heart motivations is the way of dealing with sexual sin. It's not just the putting off and putting on. It's realizing what is really bringing you to pursue this. And in concluding here, but thanks be to God that through, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness resulting in sanctification. Galatians 5.13, for you are called to freedom. 
brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I think that verse has such a great application for sex. You know, you're not enslaved anymore. Actually, your freedom is to be used to serve others. For those that are married, serve your spouse by pleasing them. And then lastly, act as free man or as free people. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God, because this is who we are. Let's pray. Gracious Father, uh, we come before you with gratitude in our hearts because you have given us instruction to everything pertaining to life and godliness. But I do pray here, Lord, if there's anyone who's struggling, they may be reminded of their identity in Christ. They're no longer slaves, but they might have been slaving themselves through these sexual sins. I pray, Father, that they might find hope in the gospel and they might seek help with, others, uh, with other believers that might be able to encourage them, to help them to examine their hearts to what is motivating them to pursue the sins. And most importantly, Father, may they find support um, from you first and foremost and from your church. This is a place for um, salvation and sanctification, Father. May we proclaim these truths in your name. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.